This feels like a pretty rough time between yield, pandemic, the economy, crime, all the other usual problems South Africa has to deal with. So on our third season of Don't Shoot the Messenger, we thought we'd try something different. We'd look at solutions instead of problems. Now, it's often said about South African journalism that it's simply too depressing. The focus on bad news is relentless. And while that's kind of the nature of the beast, we thought this season we'd try and make a tiny contribution in the other direction. To say, okay, we all know what our problems are in this country. Seriously, we get it. Instead, let's look at how we fix them. Because when you start looking into this, you quickly realize that all over South Africa, there are people with great ideas doing stuff, getting on with the business of making things better. We wanted to tell their stories. So this is season three of Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. This season, the stories we're looking at are of people fixing things. There's an obvious caveat here. In most cases, the issues we're dealing with have very deep historical and structural roots. We're not saying that we know how to make those things better overnight. Neither do the people we're interviewing. What we're doing is exploring interesting new ideas to help tackle very difficult old problems. I'm your host, Rebecca Davis. Let's get on with the show. This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. In this first episode of our third season, we're looking at that perennial South African scourge, crime. It affects everybody, it's on the rise, and we often seem totally at its mercy as a society. But that cannot be the final story. Today, we're talking to local and international experts on crime, hearing about one country which turned its crime situation around in the 1990s, and talking to a local organization with a simple but brilliant concept to keep South Africans in high crime areas safe. South Africa's latest crime figures are out, and they're bad. Murder, rape, assault, all increasing. It sometimes seems like everything's just getting worse all the time, so I wanted actual facts here. I asked Gareth Newham, who's a researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, to put the national crime picture into perspective. From 2012 until now, which is about eight, nine years, the murder rate increased by 37%. So quite substantially and year on year. And the only other crime category that increased that much by 43% is armed robberies, aggravated robberies. And that is robberies where a perpetrator or group of perpetrators with weapons threaten or use a weapon in order to steal from someone. And that obviously then leads to people being killed, murdered, raped in certain circumstances. So we have been getting increasingly less safe since 2012, to the extent that there are now 43,000 more armed attacks. So statistics from 2019 to 2020. In that financial year, there were 43,000 more armed robberies across the country than was the case in 2012. So close to 120 more armed attacks every day on average. And the numbers of uh, murders, we were looking at about around 5,000 more murders taking place in 2020 than in 2012. So we certainly are not heading in the right direction. So the country is becoming less safe, which we know is likely linked to a whole bunch of other factors, like increasing unemployment. Just so we can keep in mind what we're aiming for, 
I asked Gareth to remind us what societies look like which have very low levels of violent crime. Societies with very low levels of violent crime are societies that tend to be very stable and have been stable for a very long time. Or the population hasn't been exposed to high levels of violence, for example, in, in, they haven't been part of any wars or any kind of internal strife for quite a long time. They tend to have strong social networks, strong cultural norms that resist violence as a way of dealing with problems. They tend not to use corporal punishment at high levels. They tend to be very focused or have quite strong social networks and support systems, good education systems. And these are not necessarily wealthy countries, the rich countries, some of them are middle income or poor or less developed. But those are the kinds of factors that tend to be associated with lower levels of violence. Here's one of the things that makes crime seem such an intractable issue. We can all think of examples of places that used to be safe, crime-free, peaceful, which have now become crime-infested hellholes, be they in South Africa or internationally. It's much more difficult to think of the converse, places that used to be overrun by crime and now are just as delightful and peaceful as can be. Because we assume that that would require a whole constellation of factors, improved economic opportunities, better policing, maybe better drug policies, a whole bunch of stuff. But actually, there's a really good example of a whole very big country which experienced a kind of precipitous drop in crime in the last decades of the 20th century. And that country is the little known United States of America. My name is Bernard E. Harcourt, and I am a professor of law and political science. Bernard Harcourt is one of the most distinguished legal scholars in the world. He heads up two units at Columbia University in New York. And he's also a total mensch. I say that because we put him through technological hell recording this episode, and he remained very nice throughout. Anyway, Bernard makes the point that America's big cities in particular were pretty dodgy places to be for much of the second half of the 20th century. The United States had experienced vastly increasing rates of crime from the end of the 1960s up until 1991, basically. And so there had been a spike in violent and property offenses during the 1970s and during the 1980s. There had been three spikes that corresponded really with three different drug waves, the last of which at the turn of the 1990s was crack cocaine. And because of the shifts in the drug markets and the fact that crack cocaine was, was a new drug that was being distributed by new organizations, there was a lot of violence associated with the drug trade at the time. And then something changed. From around 1991 onwards, there's this massive decline in crime across the United States. We're talking a 60% decrease in robberies and murder in cities like New York and Los Angeles. I mean, those are figures to make a South African weep. In New York, authorities were very quick to take credit based on the policing theory generally known as the broken windows approach, which we'll discuss in a second. But actually, Bernard says, that just doesn't really make sense. The same thing was happening in the city of Los Angeles with a police force that was completely dysfunctional. So there, there was no broken windows policing going on. In fact, the LAPD was completely dysfunctional because it had just had the Rodney King incident. And uh, it was going through a period basically of kind of like about to get federal oversight because of the 
planting of weapons and drugs on people that was happening in the 1990s. So a, a dysfunctional police department. And if you looked at the rates in Los Angeles, actually robberies declined a smidgen more than in New York over the period. And what you saw across the entire United States was a remarkable, wonderful drop in crime, which frankly, no one really has been able to explain properly uh, in this country. Let me just repeat that in case you zoned out for a second. The USA experienced this incredible drop of crime across the country in the 90s, seeing reductions of 60% and more in robberies and murders, and nobody is quite sure why. Bernard says there have been all kinds of wild theories aimed at explaining the lowering of the American crime rate. The economist Stephen Levitt, for instance, who you might know from Freakonomics, has, together with his colleagues, come up with a model that suggests that the legalization of abortion in America in 1972 may have contributed to the drop in crime. Other economists think that's crazy. But if we actually entertain that for a second, we know that in South Africa, despite abortion being legal, only a fraction of the abortion services that government should be offering are up and running. So if the Freakonomics dude is right, making access to abortion in South Africa easier and safer could put a big dent in the crime rate. But the one thing Bernard says cannot possibly explain away the drop in American crime is policing. And that's because both the quality and methods used by American police in different cities was wildly varying. So in New York City, that drop has popularly been attributed to the theory known as broken windows policing. The idea of the broken windows was first introduced in an article in 1982. And what it proposed effectively was that minor forms of public disorder, if left unchecked, lead to more serious forms of crime. So a neighborhood where graffiti appears and is ignored, where broken windows happen and are ignored, can soon expect to see more hardcore misdemeanors taking place. And the flip side of this, which is the policing theory, is that if you crack down on the broken windows, these minor infractions, you can preempt the rest of the crime. The PR campaign around this theory, which was pushed by the then New York City mayor, Rudy Giuliani, was so successful that broken windows is often viewed as a kind of magic bullet for policing. You often hear people talk about it in South Africa. That's what we need. If we had no tolerance for the small infractions, we'd get less of the serious stuff. And that's actually why we called up Bernard Harcourt in the first place, because he's done possibly more research than anyone else into broken windows policing. And here's the problem. He said how it translated, at least in New York City in the early 90s, was basically into just very heavy-handed policing. The idea was essentially to increase uh, misdemeanor arrests uh, as a way to increase police-civilian contact. Um, That's basically how the broken windows theory translated into effect. So it became a policy of very high police contact with civilians in order to enforce minor misdemeanor laws like everything from, you know, having an open container of of beer or uh, smoking marijuana in the street or jumping the turnstile in the subway or littering or engaging in any kind of, uh, of behavior that could be viewed as misconduct. And that's how it translated. It translated into a high misdemeanor arrest policy. But 
what it was was basically a, a policy of high surveillance, high contact, trying to have more police contact with people on the street so as to be able to search them, to be able to check their records, uh, to be able to turn them into informants. Bernard says it's pretty much a straight line from the advent of so-called broken windows policing to the racist incidents of police brutality that have shaken America in recent years. The Eric Garner death, you know, I can't breathe, right, was the perfect illustration of broken windows policing. He was getting arrested for selling Lucy's, for selling cigarettes, for selling a single cigarette, right? Because it violates the tax laws in this country if you don't sell a pack of cigarettes. So he was selling a single individual cigarette, which, you know, is one way that some people try to make a little income. And he was getting arrested for that, that classic broken windows policing, which ultimately resulted in his strangulation. If there's one thing we definitely don't need more of in South Africa, it's police brutality. What up, Jacques Poe? So we're striking broken windows policing off the list of potential fixes for our crime situation. And after the break, we're looking at the kinds of relatively small interventions that can actually work to lower crime rates in particular areas. Change is everywhere. Sometimes it's good, sometimes confusing, or so extraordinary that it challenges everyone and everything. But whatever change comes next, 91 will strive to do everything possible to make a positive change for your investments and for the world we live in. 91. Investing for a world of change. This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. We often talk about the whole of South Africa as crime-ridden, but that's not accurate by any means. The majority of violent crime in South Africa happens around very particular areas, which are well known to both the police and the public. Here's researcher Gareth Newham again. There are 1,150 precincts, and a little over 10% of those precincts record 50% of all murders in South Africa. And when you look in more detail at murder, you find that 50% of murders also take place on Friday and Saturday nights in very particular hotspots. So we've done a lot of detailed geographic analysis from policing data where they've actually got a specific place where murders and robberies take place. And you can certainly see specific places that come up over and over again in particular communities. So here's one really easy thing South African police could be doing, but Gareth says they're not. Instead of trying to be everywhere all the time, focus your patrols and your presence on Friday and Saturday nights in these hotspots. There's another related issue here, which is kind of the constant elephant in the South African room, and that's alcohol. Turns out, limiting the sale of alcohol immediately brings the kind of drop in the murder rate that we all dream of. We know this now for certain, which is handy, because of the ban on alcohol during the COVID-19 lockdown. When we looked at the month-on-month murder reductions taking place from April last year, I think in the first month there was a 55% reduction in murder. So when there's a full lockdown, murder dropped by half, more than half. When there was a partial lockdown by level three, it dropped by 15%. Few people would advocate for South Africa entering a permanent state of prohibition. But Gareth says there are also interventions around alcohol and around places where people consume booze, which police have used to positive effect in some South American countries, 
essentially placing people in popular boozing areas who are trained in how to manage conflict. Garrett says there's basically two kinds of intervention when it comes to managing crime. One is preventative and one is reactive. The second kind is a lot easier because you're not trying to do anything about the roots of crime. You're just trying to keep people safer. And that's exactly the kind of thinking that inspired Tuli Mtetwa, the founder of an NGO called Memeza. Tuli's on leave at the moment, but she deputized her second-in-command, Elmarie Pereira, to talk to us. Tuli's sister was attacked living in Tembisa at that time. And during that time where the attackers were trying to get into the house, the sister literally tried to contact family, neighbors, the police, and could not get hold of anyone. Eventually, obviously, the criminals came in and it, uh, luckily everybody survived, but it was a very, very traumatic experience for Tuli's sister and the whole family. Tuli then decided to go and look for affordable security solutions that's available in more vulnerable communities. What Tuli was looking for was basically an affordable alarm system that could be used in high crime areas like townships. And she couldn't find any. So Tuli decided to develop her own, which is how Memeza came about. She developed a community alarm system that, at the press of a button, notifies the South African police service, the closest police vehicle, community policing forum, any patrollers close by, and family and friends. Something, in other words, that could have changed everything for her sister when she was under attack in Tembisa a few years ago. Elmarie explains how it works. It's a one unit that you install in your living area, for instance. It has a panic button that allows you to even panic when you are about 200 meters away from the alarm, or you can panic on the alarm itself. We also included a strobe light that gets installed on the outside of the house because lots of times just by making noise and by having a flashing light, you alert people around you that you are in trouble. So all of these aspects came together in this little alarm system, giving you sound, the flashing lights on the outside of your house, the ability to press a button and panic SMSs are sent to everybody that's loaded on the alarm system. And then obviously involving your closest SAPS sector vehicle and your community policing patrollers. This is the kind of idea that is so simple, you just can't believe it hasn't been done before. Give people in high crime areas alarm systems. And if you're wondering if something so simple could really make much of a difference, the answer is more than you can even imagine. Elmarie says that Mameza started off by running a pilot project in Diepslut from 2014 to 2015. Firstly, from an SAPS point of view, because they now received this SMS on their cell phones within the sector vehicle, it meant that they could cut their response times from, you know, over an hour to 7 to 12 minutes to respond to a crime. What we saw from a sexual offences point of view, there was a 67% drop in sexual offences that was lodged with the police in that period of the project running. We saw an 89% drop in house robberies in the houses that, that had the alarm installed. And it even went as far as a 9% drop in murder rate in the areas in Dipsluit where the, where the project was deployed. So it definitely works because it connects you, it mobilizes people around you, it increases participation, it proactivates the police and the community policing forums, and obviously it prevents because news spreads very, very quickly in the criminal world. And also you can immediately, when you're walking past the house, see the strobe light. So it, it kind of prevents you from wanting to enter 
or do anything that might get you caught. Mameza now has a footprint in every province, and Elmery says they have good partnerships with local police and government and big corporates, even though these alarm systems aren't anywhere close to being rolled out nationally. The more projects we do, the more we prove that this way of working with affordable technology, bringing technology to vulnerable communities on the ground and allowing that technology to proactivate the response mechanisms that are in those communities is the way to solve South Africans' crime problem. I think the more we deploy these projects, the more it becomes evident and we're hoping that it will result in some point where it's a standard that can be deployed to all South Africans. I asked Gareth Newham what he thought about Memeza's solution. He said, sure, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, that is something that does work and has worked in different contexts around the world. Places like Rio, they bang pots outside houses where there's domestic violence going on. Throughout Africa, there's also various examples of drawing attention. The victim is given an opportunity to draw attention to themselves if they feel threatened. The community is made aware that if you hear this noise or the sound, please come out, as it then reduces the chance of the person being a victim of some kind of violence or crime. So yeah, that can work. But Gareth says there's also a problem here that applies to a lot of these kind of reactive interventions. And that's that they don't solve crime, they displace it. So criminals find out which areas are using those Mameza alarms, and they move to another area. The factors that are driving people to commit crimes in the first place haven't been addressed. Those reactive interventions do work, in other words. They just only work in those areas. So what Gareth says is needed, ultimately, is the other type of intervention. The difficult kind, the long-term preventative kind. And they start with babies and the relationships between parents and children. The best thing you can do for long-term sustainable reductions in violence and crime is to start ensuring that we focus on caregivers of children, particularly teenage parents, teenagers are giving birth, uh, single women in very poor or underdeveloped areas, and make sure that from the moment they start seeking medical assistance or go for checkups, that they're aware that they can get support in how to do very simple things, to understand nutrition with children, how to understand different developmental phases in children so that they're able to better to recognize what the child is doing and how to respond to its needs. Lots of studies show that kids who are hit by their parents start to see violence as normal or desirable. So trying to stamp out corporal punishment could be a major step forward. So could funding early childhood development centers. Kids should be kept in school as long as possible, both in terms of years and hours in the day, because hopefully they're safer in school than they are out on the streets. And almost none of this is actually the province of the police. It's the work of social development. It's the work of the education sector. And it's long-term, generational work. But it's also the work that we have to do, because the rewards are likely to be massive. There are things you can do in a particular community, you know, give women rape whistles, or you can have interventions with young men around substance abuse and peer counseling, and that will have a difference. So it's about trying to get a balance between what can you do now immediately to help people who might be victims, but if you want to see sustainable improvements in public safety over time, over the next 10 years, then we need to do a combination of things that are not just short-term reactive interventions. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. 
This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dawji and written by Rebecca Davis, with original music and sound mix by Bernard Kotze, editing by Tevya Turok-Shapiro, and additional support from Catherine Kotze. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on the Daily Mavericks website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to the Daily Mavericks newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.